0: Welcome to Coming Up for Air, the Allies in Recovery podcast, with hosts Laurie McDougall, Kayla Solomon, and Dominique Simone Levine.
1: Today's conversation, ladies, we are talking about relationship one-directionality is what we're calling it. So we're talking about when you feel like you're the only one doing all the work. Or you're doing most of the work. What do you think?
2: There's two things. There's the actual fact that the person who's dealing with the substance use issue is exceptionally distracted by their desire to obtain substances. And when I think about that, I think, oh, it's their primary focus and relationship. So really, just the way that that's established is your secondary right off the bat. And then what what's happening is the work that we're asking you to engage in with the allies in recovery and craft model is that you're doing this pretty much a heavy lift of changing things and doing things differently and reaching out even if the person is not necessarily communicating well with you. And so, how do you do that in a way that doesn't make you feel resentful or exhausted or overly responsible or even can you use that negative word, codependent? So what's the too much part of it? Where do you draw the line and how do you do this work without doing it in a way that you feel like you are being burdened by it?
0: And before we get to the solution, let me just point out how secondary you are when drugs and alcohol or some process addiction is in the room. And I think especially in relationships and intimate relationships, where you're not sure what you're fighting, but you're fighting something. And it turns out you're fighting that addiction. The focus is away from you, and it's on addiction, and it's hidden. So you're never sure what's going on. You just feel like you're not it. It's it's almost a jealousy of what. You don't know what you're jealous of, right? So it's very difficult to not take that personally. But as long as there's active addiction, you should prepare yourself for feeling like second class citizen because every day, every day you have to find the drugs, right? Or whatever your pattern is, every day you have to find the money, you have to find the drugs, you have to find the way, you have to find the time, you have to find the transport. So it's, you have to find the dealer. And and so it's, it's a lot of work and you are not the focus, that's true. You are incredibly important to me as a person with addiction because I need your help, I need your support, I need your normalcy. You know, you are everything to me in terms of my life remaining okay. So I need you, but you're not first.
1: I think it's important that families take everything you're saying into account, that you're not number one. But I also don't want families to misunderstand that the individual, and I hear this a lot, that the individual is incapable of loving you, that that's not what this means. They do still love you and care for you, but instead take a step back and understand that the drug is the only coping skill they have in life, and the drug also affects their brain in a way that forces them to think about it 24-7, and the fear of withdrawal and the pain that they're going to experience puts it in the forefront of their mind. So that is their single goal is to get that drug so that they don't experience pain. And I'm talking physical pain, mental pain and anguish. And we're talking deep, deep pain, which is why the drive to get the drug is so important. And remember this, that any kind of added pain, meaning something that happens in their life that now makes things complicated the only coping skill is the drug so if they're being i don't know they go to work and their boss yells at them because they're late now they're experiencing mental anguish i need to go and get the drug it's the only way i'm going to feel better or they come home and the, and you're like you're late. Why are you doing this to me? The only coping skill is to go and get the drug. So it's really important to separate the two things and to understand that yeah, that is their single most important thing in their life is to go and get the drug. But they're doing it because they want it. They don't want to feel miserable. They want to at least feel normal. But that doesn't mean that they don't love you and they don't experience these other feelings because they do. It's just that this is in the forefront of their mind. So remember that every time something gets thrown at them, the whole goal is to go and get the drug to make that go away.
0: And I would just add, it's the fear of withdrawals. It's the fear of emotional, just dive down. And it's also the desire to feel normal so that you can get through your day and be productive and have some energy for what you need to get done, too, which may be no more than finding the money to find the dealer to find the drugs to get the transport to get home to take, you know, that could take all day. So the other thing I would just point out is the the short term thinking, which is it's a day at a time for the person with addiction. If you want something done next week, you, you can get a yes today all you want, but next week it'll be what is my day looking like to, you know, I have this main obligation and I don't have time for whatever you want to, done. So really day by day thinking and and families with adult children often see, you know, they're not, they need to think of the future. They're not even thinking about next week and they're not because of what laurie's saying the only thing they really are thinking about is needing to have their stash and their body and mind feeling good enough and that takes up the day and i heard this talk not too long ago and it was like what would you do if water were in short supply and you were thirsty What would you do to get the water? How long would you wait? Could you wait until the next day? No, you would start obsessing about solutions and ways to get the water. And that's exactly how it is when when you're addicted to alcohol or drugs.
2: But I think we need to look at the same thing for family members. And by the way, what you just said, Dominique, is the same exact issue for partners and siblings. You try to make plans with somebody, plans are not their friend. They don't know how they're gonna feel, what's gonna be going on. So making plans just feels like torture. And also their their plans for finances for the drugs and alcohol. It's like, we need to be realistic about what the other person is dealing with. The reason we wanted to bring it up is because it's so easy to get sucked into the undertow of resentment when you have one person that's so externally focused, not paying attention to you, not hearing you. not let, And look at the tools that we talk about in the Allies and in Craft. There's active listening there's positively reinforcing behavior there's engagement there's tracking the person in a positive way there's ways to like take care of yourself but also have good boundaries and none of these things are happening coming back towards you so that's the really painful reality of what we're asking people to do is to really change the dance in a positive way but not have the expectation that this, that it necessarily is going to come back in equal measure towards you.
1: Right. And so feelings of resentment, anger, betrayal, never mind when, when our loved ones then pile it on even more because, because they're not able to get their drugs or we're actually a barrier to them getting their drugs and they start to yell and call us names and blame us these things all lead to those feelings of resentment and anger and feeling like, well, why do I have to be the one to do all of this work? Why am I the one that has to change? So, and I've heard this, I heard this just recently. Oh, okay. So I'm the one who has to do all the work and they're not going to do anything. And it's for them and their recovery. But what's interesting is I really think that actually, understanding that, yeah, you're doing this to change the dynamics, but you're actually doing the same kind of thing that your loved one is doing. So your loved one is searching for a drug to make them feel better. We are often looking to our loved one's behavior to make us feel better. If you change, I feel better. If you stop doing these things, I will feel better when actually we need to kind of look within ourselves and work on that resentment, work on those feelings and those emotions so that we can interact with our loved ones in a way that's more understanding, compassionate, and caring. And it actually is about, yeah, you may be doing more of the work, but you're actually doing a lot of this work for yourself and for the relationship.
0: I have to bring up one stat. Sorry, ladies, but we ask families whether or not there was improvement in how their loved one communicates back to them. I know we teach families how to communicate to their loved ones. 88 to 90 percent of our families report that the loved one is communicating better with the family, with you. And I just heard the other day from someone who said to me, She said, I have never had such transparency and honesty. In my relationship with my loved one, this is a whole new world for me and a whole new way to address addiction, which is exactly the point of craft, right? We're teaching you a new way in, a way in which you're partnering, the communication is respectful, there's dignity, you're listening, and that is coming back to you. That is coming back to you. Most of these people were not just somewhat helped. They were both very or extremely helped in getting their loved ones to communicate better with them, not by trying, just by modeling and communicating themselves to their loved one. And that's what we do here in the craft work.
2: So now I think it's time for us to talk about how to manage your emotions when it feels so one-sided i just want you to know i'm stealing the suggestions of the group because they are my experts and really what the discussion is about is that you have to start by sitting with the feelings i I was actually driving into the today and i was thinking to myself sitting with the feelings is possibly the most important aspect of what we're asking people to do for a couple of reasons because we're asking you to become more aware of yourself and Every time I think about what allies is working on is we're working on increasing your awareness of everything, but it starts with yourself. What's my reactions? What are my expectations? What am I actually doing? What's my behavior? Where do I feel it in my body? And therapeutically, the reason to do this is because anything that's unconscious that you're not aware of basically drives your bus. It runs you without you having any idea that it's running you, you have no control over that. But once you stop and sit with things and increase your awareness, you then have choice. You then have control. You then have the ability to to respond and not just react. And so I cannot, we cannot stress enough how that when we talk about pause, it's to to sit, to watch, to look, to kind of dig in, to see what's going on with you.
1: Can I add a little bit to this? Because we've been... Actually, the past couple of nights, this is exactly what we've been talking about in, in my groups, is we've been going over self-awareness and how self-awareness is a way to create space and to actually start to, and we say this all the time, feel your feelings, right? Like you're supposed to feel cucky feelings when you're in cucky situations, right? Things can't be wonderful and positive all the time. This goes back to, we're all doing the exact same thing, even the person with addiction, right? Everybody is spending the majority of your life trying to feel better, no matter what situation you're in. I mean, if you think about it, I can't wait for my day to end at work. I just wanna get home and take my shoes off and loosen my tie. Right. I just want to eat my dinner so that I can go and sit on the couch and relax a little bit. I just want to Right, We're always looking to that next moment when we're going to feel a little bit better. And that's exactly what the person with addiction is doing. They're doing the exact same thing. So we've been talking about self-awareness and accepting. So now we're getting into more definitions. We've been doing a lot of definitions around this in the group. Accepting things the way they are in this moment That's what self-awareness kind of requires, accepting the fact that this is a difficult situation. I'm gonna feel really challenging and difficult emotions and I need to just sit with them and not fight them because I'm a human being and when things get difficult, I should experience these feelings. And that's what we're trying to get our loved ones with addiction to do, right? Is sit with their difficult feelings and learn to cope and manage. But yet we as family members struggle to do that as well. So that's the whole point of awareness. Sit and think and start asking yourself some questions. What am I feeling? Well, I'm feeling really angry and you know what? Give yourself permission to feel that way. It is okay for you to feel really angry or to feel deeply sad. And once you give yourself permission and you kind of sit with it long enough And I don't mean an extended period because it can quickly kind of deescalate within your own system. But also remember, a lot of the time we can go down a rabbit hole and stay there. So it's important to recognize your feelings, acknowledge your feelings, give yourself permission to have these feelings, but then take steps towards calming it down. So we've been talking about this. Okay, now we share in the group, okay, what are different things that you can do? to kind of change your thoughts, right? You can you can take your mind off of it by going and doing chores or doing something that you like. Go and garden, go and cook, you know, go watch a TV show, do whatever you need to do in order to calm your system down, but then don't stay there, right? Like don't stay in those awful, because this is a part of my problem with venting, or having or telling people what I'm going through in the moment in this these chaotic moments because oftentimes unsolicited advice will keep you there. Yeah, he's such a jerk. Oh, she shouldn't have done that. Why don't you kick her out? You should do this, you should do that. Yeah, yeah, I'm so angry. I'm so, and it kind of keeps you there. So it's sit with the feelings, become aware, acknowledge them. Give yourself permission to feel them. Now go find something that you're going to do that's going to help settle it and then pull out your craft skills. (laughs) Then how am I going to approach this?
2: Well, and and I think we're looking at what you can control because when we talk about power, it's like, what can you control? You can't control what the other person is doing, but you can control yourself. So for me, if I'm feeling powerless about a particular situation, first of all, I need to reframe it which is that it will all work out somehow, even if it's terrible, I don't need to go down the terrible path because that's just me making up a story. I have no idea what's going to happen. And part of what we're asking people to do is to get comfortable with being not knowing. And that's very hard for most of us. We like to know, we like to be in charge, we like to make things happen. And so much of this work is not having control over outcomes, but you have control over process, which is what are you doing at this moment? And if this moment the only thing you could do is take care of yourself, that is your where you have power. And uh, lots of folks talk about journaling. You find people that you know you can talk to and you'll know the people that are not helpful to you. That's not the people that you go to for this. And I also agree with Lori is that, you know, you call it, you know, what what did you call it? Downloading or something like that. I call it fetching. Down the rabbit hole. Yeah. To me it's like you have like 10-15 minutes to complain about something and then you have to stop yourself because it could go you could go on forever and this is when having a gratitude practice really helps because you have to shift from all the terrible things that are happening to look at what's good not necessarily even with that person but in your life it could be that the sun is shining it could be that you have a kitten sitting on your lap it could be that you have plans to go for a walk with somebody or you're doing those little art projects that allow you to calm down or you have this great podcast that you're gonna listen to. But you need to look at, in our question, it's like, what just happened? What do I feel about it in my body and my emotions? What do I wanna do? Which is not always the most rational choice, but then what's the my best self wanna do and need to do? Which is a different question.
1: I want to add a few pieces because you and I are talking, we're talking about the exact same thing. I also want to kind of, one, when Kayla's talking about reframing, this is module four, very first video in module four, no negative talk. And I know we often often think about that communication module and that video as far as no negative talk with your loved one, but it's also no negative talk with yourself. And it helps to minimize catastrophizing and awfulizing. So you start off with the catastrophizing and awfulizing. Oh, I hate him! I'm so angry! I want to punch him in the face! In the face! I want to put a hole in the wall! I want to... You know, I can't believe I'm the one who has to go for a drive and leave my house right in order to calm down. But then you reframe it. You take that negative talk that you're experiencing, you reframe it, and you start using positive talk is it that I really can't stand it anymore because I'm still here? So you start to kind of reframe it, change the negative talk, turn it into positive talk. Negative talk is often what you don't want and and demanding and being aggressive and positive talk is a lot softer and it's talking about what you can do, what you are able to do. And it really is a very empowering piece and then the one other thing that I want to add in there that I think is a really important piece and Kayla you were talking about this at the end. The other question to ask yourself once you've calmed down is, who do I want to bring to the table, do I want to bring my helpful self or my hurtful self, am I going to make this situation more complicated and just make it worse or. Do I want to be my helpful self and bring my own personal values to the table? I want to be a compassionate, caring. If I was to pass away, I want people to remember me as a compassionate, caring and understanding person, including my loved one. So asking yourself, what is it that I want to bring to the table is the same thing, the same question, I think, as what do you want or what do you... Who do you want to bring here?
2: It's actually, what does my best self want? Because there's what do I want, which is I want to control the situation. I want to make it stop. I want to make it better. That's not your best self. That's the anxiety talking. Your best self is the one that says, I want to be a person of compassion. I want to have a good relationship. I I don't want to have to apologize. Um, And then I also want to focus on myself and figure out how to take care of myself. Because that's something I can do right now.
0: Yeah, I would also add module seven is the self care module. And we really, what we did is took cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a very well understood and uh, well researched approach, and just made it light. So, just giving you an idea of the kinds of negative thinking and the distortions that we're capable of in these moments of trying to stay still with these very bad feelings predicting the worst, awfulizing, right, black and white thinking, just uh, predicting, predicting all over the place, hypothesizing all over the, I mean, you can spend hours in this stuff. And we point out the, the most common ones so that you get used to seeing when you're doing it. When you see yourself doing it, the negative talk or or the awfulizing or or these these rabbit holes of hypothesizing what's going to happen to him if this if that if you know and it's like just stop just stop yourself and the only other thing i would say is in that stillness you know i haven't had a cigarette for 30 years but i still want one As soon as i get mad i still want to smoke i mean it is really deep inside me and these bad habits that I have that were seriously bad habits, you know, whether you're stuffing cake in your mouth or drinking more coffee or whatever it is that you do that isn't exactly how you want to be either, these are the moments you're gonna be faced with those two those things. You know, not only should you have a compassionate reframing, but don't eat the whole cake, right? You have to like really get a hold of yourself because it's not just our loved ones that have that are reaching outside of themselves to cope they've chosen one course we are very likely to choose courses that aren't good for us either paying attention to that is really really important
1: and i also think that by doing this not only do you reframe the story for yourself but reframe the story of your loved one for yourself remember back to this podcast and say okay this individual in the forefront of their mind is actually finding the drug. It doesn't mean that they don't love me. And it actually doesn't mean that they're doing this to me. It's that they're trying to cope. And that can bring in a little bit of empathy where you can pull up alongside this person as opposed to having these feelings of resentment. And all the while, all the while, while you're doing all of this stuff and you're taking space and you're reframing and you're you are learning to manage and deal with your own difficult feelings. You are also modeling for the other individual how it is that you learn to deal and cope with extremely difficult feelings. This is why you want to do it. This is why you you do want to better yourself, right? You do want to do this stuff for yourself And for everybody else that's involved, because you are able to bring, uh, like Kayla said, your best self into the room and affect change. So, yeah, you may have to do a lot of work and your loved one isn't doing, you know, half as much as you're doing. Although I would I would say reframe that, too, because maybe they are you just don't know what's going on inside of their head, right? Because we tend to also try and do a lot of mind reading like I know they're trying to do this to hurt me or they're do you know they're doing this to betray me or how can they want to le- but again, reframe the story, reframe your thinking because a lot of the time that, yeah, they may be trying to manipulate you in the moment, you know, I get it. but there is a much deeper reason why they're behaving these behaviors make a lot of sense. And I think that's the whole point of today is how are you going to manage your feelings and feelings of resentment and feelings like you're doing a lot of the work and why should you do a lot of the work? Well, this is why.
2: I'm going to bring it to the close, but basically what we're talking about is if you're feeling that the relationship is one way and you're doing all the work, Just reframe it so that you're looking at it as taking your power back. And what you're taking your power back to do is not change them, but change yourself, grow, expand yourself, learn tools that you could use to be your best self. And that's what you're bringing into the relationship, which inevitably changes the dynamic, which helps the other person to heal.
0: Thanks for listening.